Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Barbara Tversky, Professor of Psychology and Education at Columbia University Teachers College, who will give the second talk in the Frankie Lecture Series, focusing on mental geography, mapping, cognition, appropriation, inscription. So I begin with Steinberg. I'm the master of them all. Um, so. Space is special. Um, this is one of the things that attracted me to it. It's accessed by many different modalities, not just vision. So there are remarkable feats by people that don't see, and they navigate, um, many of them quite well in the world. And they can do it by sounds, by kinesthetic feedback, by smells, um, and all sorts of things. And so spatial, this, it, all of these contribute to our sense of space. They aren't completely substitutable for, for each other, and they have different functions and roles, but they can be substitutable for each other. So in many ways, our spatial knowledge is supramodal. It's essential for survival. If we didn't know how to get back at home at night or how to get, bring food to our mouths, we'd be in real trouble. So we need to know about space. We probably begin learning about it before we're born, um, and we learn about it through our, our lives. We aren't perfect at it. Um, I'm going to show you a lot of errors and biases. But we probably do better in space than almost any other thing. And because it, we do so well in it, because it's so familiar to us, it becomes the basis for other knowledge. So that we think about other domains in terms of space. Um, certainly, our scientific models are spatial. Our language is spatial. We say somebody's on the top of a heap or fallen into a depression. Um, and our th so that these are ways of thinking about things that aren't spatial, but we spatialize them. And finally, as, as Hans said, our spatial knowledge isn't like geometry or physical measurement. It's constructed, and it's constructed um, out of our perception of the world and our interactions in the world, so that our conceptions of space depend on what we see and how we behave and how we interact in the world, how the world constrains us and how our body and its sense organs constrain us. And in, in this respect also, we have different, we inhabit different spaces because the, the perceptions and the behaviors of different spaces are different. And therefore, the conceptions of them are different because our conceptions derive from our perceptions and our interactions. So primary among the things in space is our body, is our own body. And in this way, uh, our body and the world around us, and I'll say a bit more about that in a second, and this is primarily what is meant when we say that cognition is embodied, the body influences the way we think, and it's situated in a world, and that also determines how we think and how we behave. So what can we say about our bodies? We can streamline our bodies into, into three axes, I and mean, we'll, there's more to it than that, obviously. But we have an, a head-feet axis that's asymmetric, a left-right axis that's more or less symmetric, and a front-back axis that's symmetric. The world also has three axes, only one of which is asymmetric, and that's the axis formed by gravity, which has a, a deep asymmetry. Um, from, from probably three quarters of our lives, our bodies coincide with that axis too. But um, some of us sleep, and then our bodies don't no longer coincide with, with uh, gravity. But these facts about the world determine a lot of our conceptions about the world. So I'm going to show you how these facts affect thought. 
and distinguish four different spaces that I think are critical. One is the space of our bodies. One is the space around our bodies, more or less in eye distance or arm reach, a little more than arm reach. Another is the space of navigation that we need to piece together because it can't be seen from one particular point of view. And the final space I want to talk about is the spaces that we create to increase our own cognition. I'm only going to talk today about graphics, diagrams, that sort of thing. But we could talk about architectural spaces as well. But we can't do everything in one hour. So first, the space of our bodies. Um, and this is work with Julie Morrison, a former graduate student. So unlike objects, bodies are experienced from the inside as well as the outside. So we have an insider perspective of, of our body. The outsider perspective gives us, of, of objects and bodies, um, the research on that has shown that of primary importance are contours, that we recognize objects and other bodies. We know what they are because they vary in contours. Chairs look different from socks, and, mm -hmm. and socks look different from tangerines. So the contours tell us, give us a lot of information about what an object is. There's other perceptual information as well, but contours are important. Um, the inside information that we get is from, from kinesthetic feedback, from proprioception, from all the feelings we have inside of a body. And they're very related, not just to appearance, but also to behavior, to function. Okay, So the, one of the ways we looked at this is by looking at a body part verification test. Now Hans said I could show data, so I'm going to show you a little bit of data. The rest of it I'm going to tell you about, but this I'll show you data. Um, so we looked, at, we looked at a task where people first saw a name on a, on a screen of a body part, and then they saw a body with a part highlighted, and they had to say are they same or different. Simple task, people do it really well, they go really fast. And we chose the parts that are more or less universally named in all languages, more or less. So head, chest, back, arm, leg, hand, foot. Okay, so those parts. They also happen to be the parts that are commonly drawn. So these sorts of tadpole drawings you could find all over the world, and kids do them everywhere. And they're not drawing what they see, which is normal, right? We don't draw what we see. Um, that's a modern idea that you should draw what you see rather than draw what you think. But you see these primary parts. This is for some reason a one-legged tadpole, but maybe two legs are redundant, right? You, why do you need to do two? Um, so you have the head, you have the arms, the hands, the leg, the foot. Um, these don't quite have the chest in the back, but more advanced tadpoles do. Okay, They get this is a, a child's progression. Of, Tadpoles, again, universal all over the world. They also happen to be the parts that we chose also happen to be the ones that are exaggerated in sense, that are overrepresented in sensory motor cortex. This is the, the homunculus that's shown. And normally that these parts have more, more neurons um, sensing and telling them what to do. Um, and this is what we would look like if the, if the body um, were equivalent in size to the brain area. Okay. Um, this is what, so we picked those parts, and we looked at, at two basic kinds of theories of part verification time. For the psychologist here, we actually looked at three. I'm simplifying here. Um, we looked at a size sort of theory that might grow out of work on imagery, and that should say that the, fa the largest parts should be easiest to identify They're, uh, for a number of reasons. They should be the easiest parts to identify. In contrast is a part significance theory, and this says 
that some parts are more significant than ones that are overrepresented in sensory motor cortex. And they're overrepresentative because they're, the behavior of those parts is more important to our existence. And the, so the other theory says that they should be the fastest ones to recognize. It turns out that these are the parts that also have contour distinctiveness. They stick out. And our arms and our legs and our heads stick out. These large parts like back and chest, don't, we're not talking about Dolly Parton here, they don't stick out so much, okay? So that they, there's some correlation, not complete, between the parts that stick out on a contour and the parts that have um, behavioral or functional significance. So the, these are what our stimuli look like. They actually look better on a screen. It was from a program called Poser that came out just as we were starting to do this research. And this program sold a million copies in its first year, and your guess is as good as mine. It shows bodies, you can make different poses from them, you can make them more man-like, more female-like, now you can animate them, but for some reason a lot of people were interested in them. My computer has got a mind of its own. So these are some of the poses that we showed, they were all natural poses, and we highlighted again like this with a little dot on the part. Only one part was highlighted. So the test looked like this, you saw a name, then you had a fixation point, then you saw a body and you answered different, right? Because it was head and this is knee or it's leg. And we collected the reaction times. As I said, people were really good at this. We were interested in how fast are they to name, to say yes or no for each of these parts. You notice the dot is always the same size. So again, the, the imagery size theory would predict that chest and back should be fastest because they're biggest. There, there they are right in your face. But the part significance functional should say these small parts or smaller parts that have great significance and stick out in the contour should be um, faster. And again, everything's jumping ahead. And that's exactly what happened. So we have here, the different colors are, again, where there's a significant pairwise difference. We have a head, um, chest, hand, and foot faster, and leg and back are slower. Why is chest faster? It doesn't have much contour significance, but we ran a separate study where we asked people to rate significance, and chest came out quite high, probably because it's the forward direction and it hides the parts that have great, that have great significance, like lungs and chest. So size loses, and significance is significant. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's what matters. And what these studies also show, I think I'm, yeah, what they also show, and I'm gonna quick get on the, online if I can, what they also show is um, that when we see bodies, we're map we might be mapping those bodies onto ourselves. We're getting sensations from walk watching them. So there have been a lot of lovely studies. What is this? It's a person walking. So, and it is. I mean, it, it, and you can recognize it as a person walking um, really easily. Um, okay, now, what is it? Male or female? Female. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, what's the weight? Okay. So, okay, you got the idea. Um, a, a, a Maggie Schiffrauer has done, I don't have, I don't have um, slides for her, but she's done wonderful studies that really show the action body connection. She shows point lights of yourself, 
of a good friend of yours and of someone you don't know and ask you to identify who they are. And they're doing walking, they're skipping, they're jumping, they're dancing, doing all kinds of things. Now these aren't ballet dancers who've been watching themselves in the mirror a lot. They're you and me who don't spend a lot of time probably in front of the mirror doing skipping, dancing, so forth. It turns out reasonably enough that you're not very good at recognizing people you don't know um, you're pretty good. You're really good at recognizing your friends, how they walk, and, and all of us have that sensation. But you're best at recognizing yourself, which I think is 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 incredibly surprising. And even you haven't seen it, but somehow or other, you are able to recognize the way you walk from seeing those point light demonstrations, from knowing what it feels like inside. So that this mapping between the the seeing and the, the knowing is, is quite strong. Um, OK, so that's the body. I want to go on. I'm going to flip through these things pretty quickly because I actually want to get to the spaces we create. And so I'm giving just a, a corner of each of these research projects. Many of these are the, the program I'm about to tell you about. There are 20 experiments, and I'm going to tell you essentially one. Um, so space around the body. And this is the space that. Um, that's just around us in, in eye vision. And we, we established these spaces only by narrative. We were really interested in the mental models that people create when they read. So this is uh, maybe close to the humanities. A lot of the studies that had been done on imagery until then were heavy-handed in the sense that they gave people visual stimuli. They told them to remember them. They told them to use them. So we're not telling anything. We're just saying read stuff. And, and then we're going to ask you questions about it. Now, th my example is much better than our stuff. So my example comes from Scott Fitzgerald. Um, Fifth and Sixth Avenues, it seemed to Anthony, were the uprights of a gigantic ladder stretching from Washington Square to Central Park. Coming uptown on top of a bus toward 52nd Street invariably gave him the sensation of hoisting himself hand by hand in a series of treacherous rungs. And when the bus jolted to a stop at his own rung, he felt something akin to relief as he descended the reckless metal steps to the sidewalk. So I think this is masterful, because you've got two images running at the same time. One of them is the geography of New York, the streets that are wide, and the, avenue, and the avenues that are wide, and the streets that are like rungs. They're coming very rapidly and narrow. So you've got the physical geography, but you've also got this mental sensation of effort and relief. And, and so he's turned this geography into a ladder. And, and, uh, and you have the going up and the relief. So as I said, our prose is, and I think this comes automatically. You can't help but get this imagery. So this is what we wanted to study. So this is work with Nancy Franklin, da later David Bryant. Um, and we gave narratives like this. You're hobnobbing at the opera. You came tonight to meet and chat with interesting members of the upper class. At the moment, you're standing next to the railing of a wide, elegant balcony overlooking the first floor. Directly behind you at eye level is an ornate lamp attached to the balcony wall. So it goes on like this, a narrative. And they read many of these. And they read each one until they learned it. And it placed six objects in front of you, behind you, above your head, below your feet, to left and right. So all extents of the body, these three axes. Um, we chose the locations of the objects by flipping a coin. It wasn't that the lamps were necessarily above your head. So there were no clues um, by the objects of where they were. People read these several times. They learned them very easily. When they thought they knew them, they turned to a computer. And then we collected data, again, reaction times, to name what was where. Okay? 
But and the, again, most of the, they, they got all the responses right, so almost no errors. They could do this task. We later enriched it with 12 objects, two people, overviews, underviews. We've done all kinds of mental gymnastics, and people can do the task. Um, so it looks something like this. There's the person. In fact, this was the stimulus in some of our studies, but now we're talking about the narratives, and you have things all over. So then you go to the computer, and the computer says, and the computer says, now you're going to turn 90 degrees so you're now facing some other object. And then it says, now what's on your right, left, above, below, etc. Turns you again, asks again. In some of the studies, we have you lie down and stand up, and it keeps asking you, and people keep doing it. Okay? So what, what are the reaction times going to look like? And again, we looked at three models. One said, all the there are no privileged places in space. All the reaction times should be the same. Okay? So that's one model, equal availability. Another model says, um, you imagine yourself in the space. You, when I ask you where's an object to your left or right, you imagine yourself turning to look at it, and then you answer, or turning all the way around, or looking up or looking down. So and that's a model from imagery, and that model is actually the one we thought would work. Um, and it says that the thing in front of you should be fastest, the things that are 90 degrees off, next, the thing that's behind you should be slowest because it takes you longer to go and look at it. So that we call the, the, the um, mental transformation model. That didn't work. Okay, so then we had to make up a new model, and, and that did work. And that's the spatial framework model. And that says what people do is form a framework out of their own bodies. So you have the three axes, and you hang the objects on it. And how the time that it takes you to name an object that's related to one of these axes depends on the accessibility of the axis, and that depends on its asymmetries. So left-right is symmetric. It's very hard to distinguish what's on left, what's on right. That's going to take the longest. Front-back and head-feet are both asymmetric axes of the body, so they should be faster. And because head-feet has this advantage of being aligned with gravity, that should be the fastest. So that was what we argued, and, and post-hoc, post-data. And in fact, that's what happened. So, People are fastest to head and feet, again, in this embodied way that's an asymmetric axis of the body. It's aligned with gravity, right? They're next fastest to front and back, which is um, an asymmetric axis of the body. They're slowest for left and right. And we've done, as I said, many different transformations of that. And we come out with the same results, except when we lie people down. And then nothing's correlated with gravity any longer, okay? Because you can be on your stomach, on your back, on your side, and different axes are correlated with gravity at each time. We did look at what was correlated with gravity. That no longer predicts it. When you're lying down, the front back is actually fastest. And we think that axis, that dimension of the body, if you take gravity away, um, is more important because it separates the world that can be seen and manipulated from the world that's behind your back. right? that can't be seen or can be manipulated. My kids used to think that I had eyes on my back, but I didn't. Um, so, um, and magicians seem to be able to manipulate behind their back, but they're highly trained. On the whole, front and back is, is, so if you take gravity away, front and back is the fastest. So these are um, the asymmetries of the body, and we're gonna see later on the graphics that they get mapped onto the graphics. These asymmetries up, down, 
left right become very important in, in how we interpret the, the metaphoric spaces metaphorically. Okay, next space of navigation. And again, Han gave you a, a big preview for that. I mean, the bottom line is going to be in non Euclidean, lots of errors. Okay, so I'm going to talk about errors. And uh, until this work, and it's not all mine by any means, many of the experiments I'll be talking about are other people's. Um, until this sort of work, people more or less thought that we, the way we remembered the world was we had a, some sort of cognitive map in our heads that looked something like the real world. Um, it might have um, had to be put together from parts. It might have faded. But whatever errors, there were random. And that view persisted, I think, partly because of simplicity, partly because there is this resistance to thinking that the mind makes systematic errors. Um, why wouldn't evolution or learning drive them away? Right? And I think we have an account of that. Um, so it, but it persisted because of simplicity and also because if you're going to find errors, you almost have to know them ahead of time and then look for them. Otherwise, you find errors and they look random. So you have to know what the errors are ahead of time. And you don't always do that. So I'm going to talk about five kinds of errors. Again, Hannah's given you a preview. So one is hierarchical organization. And this was studies done originally by Stevens and Koop. And they gave people pairs of cities. And they asked to, people to draw a line of the direction between the cities. So the interesting pair of cities, these were students at, at UCSD in San Diego. Um, Las Vegas is close to them. They probably go there on weekends thinking that they can win at 21 and, and blackjack. And, um, and some of them can. And so the, 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 but the question was, where's the relation between San Diego and Reno? And most of the students a answered the question, San Diego and Reno, by drawing a line indicating that Reno is east of San Diego. Okay? Well, it turns out it's not. Okay? Reno is west of San Diego. The coast of, here's a, a kind of visualization of it. I don't like this so much because I should, I should um, this is the wrong map. Um, this is the right map. And you see that the coast of California cuts in at an angle. So does Nevada. So that San Diego is actually east of Reno, okay? even though people think it's west. This er sort of error has been replicated in lots of different, you can find it. You can go to Italy and Japan and, s and tell them and ask them the same question and then tell them you know, they're wrong. And they all go, oh, <laughs> they don't believe it. Go look at a map. It turns out that Berkeley is, is well, OK, I'll, I'll save that for a minute. So in fact, this is made trivia pursuit. This is a question in trivia pursuit. What's the direction between them? So what, what Stevens and Coop argued is you can't remember all the directions among all the cities in the country or the world. And instead, you remember that San Reno's in Nevada, San Diego's in California. California is, for the most part, west of Nevada. So therefore, every city in California should be west of every city in Nevada. Well, it's not. But that you do, Earth is, I mean, Earth is not flat. But for the most part, this is flat, right? <laughs> and, and, but we make this hierarchical assumption, and, and, or we organize our learning, our information hierarchically, and then make this error. OK. And it distorts. There are num numerous examples of this. It distorts direct distance as well as direction. So error number one. Error number two is a perspective error. This is work by Holyoke and Ma. And they took students in Ann Arbor, which is not the middle of the country. Um, and they asked them to imagine themselves in San Francisco, one group, one group to imagine themselves in New York. And then they asked them distances to five cities more or less scattered evenly across the US. 
What's interesting here is if you imagine yourself in New York, you think the distance between New York and Pittsburgh is bigger than if you imagine yourself in California. And vice versa, if you imagine yourself in California, you think the distance between San Francisco and Salt Lake is bigger than if you imagine yourself in New York, you think it's smaller. So it's that you telescope it. It's me looking at you. I see the distances between those of you who are closer to me as bigger than the ones far from me. They get all telescoped. So um, of course, Steinberg knew this, right? This is Steinberg's view from his apartment on Lexington, looking and squishing, right? And he, there are numerous maps of his that are absolutely wonderful where he knew that. And this is the Bostonian's idea of the world. So yeah, Cape Cod, right? Up there, a muscle man, right? And everything else, or it's the United States. So there are lots of maps like this that have that insight. Um, we did need the psychology. But I think what the psychology showed is the perspective is flexible. These were students in Ann Arbor. They were imagining themselves in California or in New York, and they still made this error. It was all in the mind. None of it was from real experience. Some of them had probably never been in New York or California. Um, so it's error number two. Error number three is the asymmetry error that Han talked about, and it's become a cottage industry in many colleges. You collect a list of landmarks. You collect a list of things that aren't landmarks. You ask people distances between the landmark and the ordinary building, or vice versa. So Jacques House to the Eiffel Tower. And you find out that if people ask how far is Jacques House from the Eiffel Tower, you get a smaller number than if you ask how far is the Eiffel Tower from Jacques House. Okay. So that this sort of violation of, of distance can't fit any Euclidean model. And again, it's been replicated in college campuses all over. So these errors refute a faded picture view or an imagery view. And what they support instead is a constructionist view, which I'm going to run through. And you, people build up these mental representations, I want to say, the way that they build up representations of the real world. So one of the early processes is distinguishing figure from ground, which isn't always easy. I mean, can you read that? I've given you a cue. It says figure. But the reason it's hard to read is that we've turned the, the spaces between the letter into the figure and the letters into the ground so that it becomes. So here's another example from art. Art was playing with these things. So this is Vassarelli, the lovers. And you can see one of them or the other but it's hard to see both at once. And the one that you see, if you're like me, feels closer. And the one that you, you, you the other one feels like background and feels farther away. So that when the, it flips who you're seeing as the foreground, the, the dis, you feel this depth effect. So if, it, it isn't always easy to figure, to, to discriminate figure and ground, but we, the visual system is after it. Once we've distinguished figures from grounds, we locate and orient them. And we locate and orient them with respect to each other, so one figure with respect to another. This is also how we describe things in space, right? The, the chairs are near the door. The podium is near the console, um, one object in terms of another. Or we might, again, describe or think about things in relation to the room. So the screen is at the front of the room. Um, we have the axes of the room. The, the coordinates of the room that we the, it serve as a frame of reference. So each of these processes, seeing a figure with respect to another or with respect to a frame of reference, can bias. 
Um, so one error we call alignment, that's coding a figure relative to another figure, and you remember them as more aligned. And this was the example with Rome and Philadelphia, that we asked people which map is correct. We showed them these two maps of the world, and um, I recently, some people in, in ge geography asked me to publish something, to write something, and I used this example, and they said, can we redo the maps? The cartographers will be offended. <laughs> I thought, this is psychology. These were the stereo, right? I drew them once waiting for a parent-teacher meeting. I sketched, I had an, uh, an encyclopedia and I sketched them. I, I put transparent paper over them and drew them from that waiting to talk to a third grade teacher. Um, anyway, so this is so, more, pe more people chose the incorrect map than the correct one. The incorrect map is this one. And the reason it looks better is alignment. We put Africa closer to Africa and South America more lined up, the United States and Europe more lined up. So a significant majority of people pick the incorrect map. And we've run this study every which way too. It works on blobs, it works on cities, like people think that, that Rome is south of Philadelphia when it's north of Philadelphia. Um, so it works every, in every which way. So that's alignment relating one object to another. People also code a figure to a frame of reference. The figure has its own sort of axes, and people want to align those axes with the frame of reference. So we ask people to, to put a map of South America in a frame, and everybody uprights it. So it's more upright here. This is correct. It looks tilted, because it has its own, own set of axes. People upright it. And a similar thing happens again with Italy, with Long Island, um, with many other crooked um, body <laughs> land masses. They get uprighted. So it happens in the Bay Area, and people, Stanford students think that Berkeley is east of Stanford. It's not. Berkeley is west of Stanford, okay? The Bay tilts, and Berkeley is west of Stanford. And anyone that knows the two universities, um, right, knows that Berkeley is a more Western, right? So uh, th these errors happen just all over. Um, okay, so rotation. So we've talked about five systematic errors. There are more. Um, uh, Milgram did a very nice study with Parisians where they straightened the Seine, um, which is quite <laughs> curved. Um, so you get lots more errors. Um, and these errors have analogs and abstract thought. And this is another way of saying that our spatial thinking underlies our more abstract thinking. So that um, the, the grouping, hierarchical grouping sort of thing that happens is we, we think all those Republicans are the same, right? Um, and, we, and all those Harvard students are the same, right? There are those groups, and we homogenize them. And that's the, so that these things have social impacts too. There are studies. Um, there are studies that illustrate them. The perspective error is that those who are close to us are more differentiated. The people that we know, we see more nuances. The people that are far away, usually the people in some other group, like Harvard or the Republicans, um, um, are are quite a bit. We see them as all alike because they're all squished together on our telescoping. Uh, landmark asymmetry, this was work actually of my husband's. People think that the son is more like a father than a father like a son. So you get these sorts of asymmetries to a landmark um, with, with uh, social stimuli. Uh, North Korea is more like then communist China than communist China is North Korea. This was asked when 
China, communist China was still communist China. Um, so that you get these same asymmetries in more abstract judgment. So again, these, the, these ways of reasoning express themselves all over in thinking about people and thinking about social groups, thinking about just about anything. And importantly, they can't be reconciled in a coherent map. You can't take all these errors and find some single map that will fit all of them. They, even a distorted map. I mean, the geographers didn't like this work, and they said, well, maybe there's a distorted um, geometry or topology. And I said, you go find it. Um, I don't think you will. And so maybe in cognitive maps are impossible figures. This is one of my favorite Japanese artists, Anno, and it works upside down and right side up in case you can't see it. He's someone you should look for. Um, and maybe cognitive collage is a better metaphor, that they're multimedia, modal and incoherent, but maybe more beautiful. Okay? So that's a tip of the iceberg on that work, and I want to get into space of graphics now. Um, so, and I will come back to that one. So, um, graphics diagrams are in external representations of thought, and they're cognitive tools that augment the mind. They increase memory, facilitate information processing. I'm going to talk about some other virtues. And I'd like to put forth that they're uniquely human, and this I put forth as a challenge. There are animals that make tools for their physical well-being, that improve their physical well-being. I don't think there are animals that make tools to in, that to increase their cognitive well-being, but I'd be really happy to see examples of them, of making trail markers or tallies or something like that that improves their cognitive well-being. So I think they're uniquely human. Um, you can distinguish two kinds of graphics or diagrams or visualizations. I never know what word to use. Those that are inherently visual, like maps, and that would be the paradigmatic example, and they are ancient and found in many, many cultures. Visualizations of things that are metaphorically visual, like graphs, charts, and diagrams, and they are modern and mostly appeared in the West. There are a few scattered examples, especially religious ones, um, that are more ancient, but for the most part, they start in 19th century graphs of economic data. So this is the oldest known map, 6,000 years old. It probably survived because it's clay. Um, this is an Eskimo coastal map used by Greenland Eskimos. It's wood, they're beautiful. They're, the carvings indicate the indentations of the coast. They float if they fall out of the water. They can be used in two directions, so you can go up that side and then down that side, okay? So another um, island, another seafaring sort of map, they don't all look on paper, is this is South Sea Islanders. They are bamboo, those are the ocean currents, and the shells, are the islands. You can't see from one island to another. The ocean currents are like the highways of the island, and people use these to navigate. They go thousands of miles on the ocean, open ocean, and at least some of them came back. <laughs> okay, this is a map used by North Indians that lived in this, uh, Native Americans in this region, to show somehow something got misaligned there. But th to show where, you know, here's Quebec, here's Montreal, here's New York, here's Boston. Right? It's a map you carry around with you. And anyone who knows someone from Michigan, right, they always show where they live on, right? So this is, maps come in all forms. A, a Colonel Mallory fought the Civil War and he came in contact with lots of Native Americans and saw that they were communicating by, by picture languages. They had no written languages. And he collected these things. He got a grant from the U.S. government after the war was over to run around and collect them. Dover has reprinted them in two volumes. Great book, really fun. 
so this is a love letter. Here's a um, mud puppy, and I don't know what that animal is. And one of them is, is the woman, and one of them is her lover. And she's drawn a map. Here she is in her teepee. And she's telling him, come. come. So this one I showed earlier today. This is a um, big turtle following little turtle. He's the son. The father is little man. Um, the son is, it's a letter. The son sent to the father. And you can see the speech coming out of the son's um, mouth. 25 coins up there. And he's saying, um, send me 25 and I'll come home. Okay. So there are bunches of these that are. So this is an example of an 18th century graph, one of the first um, graphs by Playfair. It looks very familiar, right? Um, except the balance of trade is not in our favor. Um, but it, it, and in fact, somebody did a survey of graphs in scientific journals and in popular journals about 10 years ago and found that 75% of them depict one or two variables against time. So this is kind of prototypical. OK, how do diagrams augment cognition? I'm, I'm low on time. They record information, convey information, promote inferences, enable new ideas, facilitate collaboration. I'm going to concentrate on convey information and have a few examples of the last three. So good graphics schematize. They omit the irrelevant and exaggerate the relevant. The London subway map is considered a masterpiece of good graphic design. And it, the Euclidean distances aren't right, although once I had to get someplace that was off my map but on the tube map, and I got there. Um, I wouldn't advise it. Um, and th what they show you are all the intersections and wh what connects with what and more or less the direction that they're going. So they're extremely helpful for what they are. And it's good and clear and not cluttered by all kinds of other information that wouldn't be helpful. So graphics consist of elements and spatial relations. And what I want to argue is that they can convey meaning directly. Um, and here's how I do it. So spatial relations first. You can do it at different levels of, of, um, of representation. One would be just categorical. You're just putting them into piles, um, males and females. Um, and, and that's all you care about. You don't care about distance. You just care about piles. It's categorical. So an example of that in written language would be the spaces between words. And there was a time when languages were written without spaces between them, and it's much harder to read. Another example are, are parentheses. They're blocking off this, this thing is separate from the rest of the sentence. I'm framing it. It's a different category. So another level would be ordinal, listing things in some sort of order, your children in order of they were born, your graduate students in the order that they, were, um, that they worked with you, the groceries in the order in which you'll find them in the supermarket, which is probably a good way to make a grocery list, and so forth. Next, we have interval or ratio, and that would be where the, the distances between elements count, not just the order of them. And graphs would be a prime example there. So we did a study with kids. And, and this was done in Israel, and it was done in the United States. There were 1,700 people in this sample. We looked at four-year-olds up to college students. I will never do a study like that again. Um, 1,700 was a little bit too much, but it meant that everything was significant. Um, we looked at, at Arabic-speaking Israelis, Hebrew-speaking Israelis, and English-speaking uh, um, Americans. And we wanted to see how do they use space metaphorically. Okay, not just space for space, but space. So we sat next to a child. We did it differently for the adults. And 
we, we each had a, we had a square piece of paper and some stickers. And the concepts we were interested in were temporal, um, quantitative, and preference. So we said to the kid, um, think about the time you have lunch. I'm going to put a, and breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm going to put a sticker down for when you have lunch. You put a sticker down for breakfast and dinner. Okay? So we were interested, do they put them on a line? Do they see it as a linear concept? This is time, not space. Do they see it on a line or not? And then we were also interested in do they represent interval? So we said breakfast, morning, snack, and dinner, where the distance between breakfast and morning snack should be closer than from um, morning snack and dinner. So that was for time. For preference, we said, what's a food you really like? Right? A food you can't stand, right? and a food that you don't care about. And we had them map those. A television show that you really like, one that you can't stand, one that's in the middle. We had them map those. We did quantity, that amount of candy in your hand, the amount of candy you get in Halloween, the amount of candy in the shelf in the supermarket. Right? or the books in the library, the books in your backpack. So we're having them map these metaphoric concepts. Well, even the four-year-olds could do it. Some of them didn't put them on a line. They put breakfast, lunch, and dinner sort of all on a blob or all over the page. Most of them put them on a line. Okay? They didn't, however, represent interval, the breakfast, morning, snack difference smaller than morning, snack, and dinner until about 11 or 12. And we pushed really hard to get them to do that. They couldn't do that till 11 or 12. But they got them on a line. So, and this was irrespective of the language that they were speaking. So the second question we were interested in is which way does the line go, okay? So for time, the lines went with the reading order of the language. So Arabic goes right to left, time, breakfast was on the right, and dinner was on the left. English goes left to right, breakfast was on the left, and dinner was on the, on the right. Hebrew went in the middle, and there are a number of reasons of why Hebrew should be in the middle. Partly the students are exposed to more Western languages, partly because numbers are written left to right, and in Arabic they go right to left. Um, that's my phone, I'm sorry. And <laughs> I forgot to turn it off. Um, and... and, uh, and so Hebrew went, um, Hebrew, Hebrew went in the middle, and, and, but, but for time, it went um, by the language. It, the language did not affect preference or, um, or quantity. What did affect them, um, oh, so this I'm showing you first. Increasing use of information increased with age. First, categorical, some of the younger kids went to ordinal, went to interval. So they're preserving more information on their metaphoric mappings with age. Um, for directionality, um, increases in quantity and preference could be mapped left to right, right to left, or down to up. The only thing they didn't want to do is put the good things on the bottom. The good things should go on the top and not on the bottom. And this again goes with language. Somebody's at the top of the heap, right? Um, we, and why does this metaphor come about? I mean, we grow upward, we're fighting gravity, so things that are more powerful and stronger, more adult, all go to the top. There's been a lot of cool work on that, and I can tell you about it, but not time here. So they're using the spaces metaphorically. Up is good, up is strong, up is, um, or left to right, right to left. But time was its own special sort of thing, and I think time went more with writing direction because it's, we write about time. 
we include the meeting went from 2 to 4 in our writing, but I don't know. So we also looked at science diagrams. We took them from a number of different domains. And in, in textbooks, we went to the library, took out textbooks, and sure, this is an evolutionary tree. And sure enough, man is on the top, and it's always man. Okay? So um, we found this sort of thing with a number of different scientific charts. Okay, so proximity in space, how is space used meaningfully? Proximity in space signifies proximity on an abstract dimension. And direct, for directionality, vertical is loaded, up is more, um, better, stronger. Horizontal is for the most part neutral. Ask anyone on the left or the right politically which is better. Um, it's not completely neutral, um, and so there are interesting things on that. Um, and there are nice parallels in language and gesture, uh, which I've already told you. So you can mix spatial metaphors. So this is, how many of you have not seen this? It just, okay. So I, I will go through it a little bit for those that haven't. This Tufti made famous. It's, it's a graph by Minard, um, a, a French engineer, to show Napoleon's unsuccessful campaign against Russia. It uses space in, in three or four different ways, and you can understand it. Just as soon as I tell you, this is geography. Here's the border, the border of France and Germany. This is Moscow, okay? The gray line coming out are Napoleon's troops that left France to go and, and, and campaign against Moscow. The width is the amount of troops. The black line is the retreat, okay? It's really a sad story. Um, every president should have this on his wall. And, say, uh-uh, I ain't going to war. Um, the, the another, so we have space being used geographically. We have space indicating the size of the troops. Here's the temperature, which also played a role. Um, and there's another use, and now I've forgotten what it is. I mean, well, we have time down here. So, and, and because it's a beautifully constructed graphic, we can understand it. It's mixing metaphors, but we can get it um, because it's beautiful, just like we can get verbal mixed metaphors, right? Um, it's just the, the language police don't like them. Um, okay, so now elements. How do they express meaning? One way that they can do it is by looking like what they represent and, or being metaphorically, using figures of depiction like synecdoche and metonymy, um, in some way representing what they, what they are meant to be, like scales of justice. So every language started out pictographic in some way or another, and then ran out of pictographic forms. But it started using those. So that you know. The, the other way, though, that elements can convey meaning, and this is what we've done work on and I think is, is interesting, is by meaningful schematic forms. So lines, curves, arrows, dots, blobs, and bars. And I want to say that they convey meaning in a context that depends on their geometric properties. So context-dependent geometric properties. So lines are one-dimensional. They suggest paths or links, okay? Um, dots suggest points or places. Um, boxes and blobs suggest enclosures or areas. Um, arrows are asymmetric paths. Um, I found this lovely quote by of Paul Clay, a line is a dot that went for a walk. Okay. So that's our path or our link. Um, so, it, this is work with Jeff Zox. We gave people one of these um, graphs, and we asked people to describe in a sentence what it is. The prediction was that boxes contain, and they suggest that 
there are a bunch of A's, bunch of B's, and the A's and B's differ. A line connects, and it says A and B share an underlying dimension. They have different values on it. Okay, so people s sometimes use these interchangeably and sometimes badly. Um, use them interchangeably and never, never, never use 3D bars, okay? Um, we have work on that too. So um, w what we predicted is that if we gave people this, the bars, people would give us discrete comparisons. You know, the A's are higher than the B's. And if people, we gave them lines, they would say there is an increasing trend from A to B. And that's what we got. So then we added values. We did the height of men and women or the height of 10 and 12-year-olds. So we took a continuous variable like age and a, a discrete variable like men and women and again, presented it as, as in one way or another. And we got people even saying if we had height of men and women like this, there were a few people that said as you get more male, you get taller. So <laughs> um, we got, and, and the visual, the visual overcame the underlying, um, of course, when it was height of boys and girls, we got more trends, and when we got high, height of um, 10 and 12 year olds, we got more trends, and when we got height of men and women, we got more discrete comparisons, but on the whole, the visual overcame the, the linguistic. Um, so, and we got the same thing if we gave people discrete comparisons, they tended to give us bar, gra bar graphs. If we gave people trends, they tended to give us line graphs. So, the, the, the bars and the lines are, are meaningful. They're conveying meaning, right? Independent of the content. Um, so, that's that story. Arrows have many uses. This is work with Julie Heiser. We gave people these, again, one of these, asked them for what it was depicting. And this is a car brake, that's a bicycle pump. This is a, a pulley system. And we, they either had arrows or no arrows. When they had no arrows, people gave us structural descriptions. They told us all the parts and where they were relative to one another. If we put the arrows in, they told us what happened from beginning to end. You push down on the handle of the, of the, of the brake, it forces air into the valve, that opens the, the, um, the flap. The air goes into the tire, the tire gets blown up. They told us what happened from beginning to end. They gave us functional behavioral causal descriptions. The arrow changed that. And we did the same thing. We gave them causal descriptions or structural ones and asked them to make diagrams. And when we give them causal, we get arrows. When we give them structural, we, get, we don't get arrows. So the, the arrow is asymmetric, and it indicates an asymmetric relationship. Um, the trouble is this and this. They're beautiful, but the arrows have a million meanings, okay? And you can't figure them out. This is the nitrogen cycle, this is the, and I have dozens of these, I can show you lots. And the arrows sometimes mean, they keep, this is how to pass a bill in Congress. So it's not just the sciences, you go around in circles, right? <laughs> so the trouble is arrows have many meanings, and the, the trick is to disambiguate them. So they sometimes are just connecting, pointing, or labeling. Sometimes they're interesting. Temporal sequence, causal, they can indicate movement, direction, or manner. They can indicate change over time, increases, decreases. They can indicate forces, things that are invisible. And distinguishing them is hard. So this example, I, we took from a biology book. There are three different meanings of the arrows there. And I don't know any biology, and I think I got it right. And, but they're not distinguished. So one is, those foreign DNA is, is labeling. Um, that arrow up at the top is, is movement. The foreign DNA is entering the cell. 
this arrow down here is saying the next stage. But, and, I, and again, it's, it's, it's simple enough that I think you can figure it out, but in these others, uh-uh. I mean, I've, I've shown this to geologists and say, okay, you tell me. And they say, oh, it's easy. And then I say, okay, tell me, and they can't. So, so that's the problem, is, is making it, is disambiguating. So next example I'm gonna go through really quickly, because these are root maps, and they end up, we had people produce root maps, they aren't Euclidean, they simplify every, all the turns to right angles, so they could be analog, but they aren't, okay? Um, they're, and I don't think it's because people don't know, this is again like the tadpole figures, this is how people are thinking. So this is another one, and these are verbal directions, and they end up being, you can schematize, there's the same underlying semantics. Okay, the pragmatics is different and the syntax is different. There's the same underlying semantics, and that's, you, you, turns look like one of those three, and you say turn, make a, take a, okay? Then you distinguish between straight and curved paths. You go down straight ones and you follow around curved ones. Landmarks are names or these blobby type things, and sometimes they put in arrows. So this ends up being a vocabulary for root maps. And we gave either the visual or the verbal vocabulary to separate groups of subjects and gave them 30 directions to write and said they may not be sufficient, so add elements. They didn't. This was a sufficient set of elements. They added turnpike, turn, freeway entrances, a few things, but not universally. They were, for the most part, sufficient. So there's a visual vocabulary here, and there are rules of connecting them, and there's a pragmatics for using them. And th this sort of thing I think you could find in, in certain domains. Um, okay, so these meaningful abstract forms, lines, crosses, arrows, blobs, they have meanings that are related to their mathematical or gestalt properties that are context specific, so they, they can be interpreted in a context. And in that way, they're very much like spatial words, like lines and relationships and fields. All of, is it a romantic relationship, a mathematical relationship, right? The context tells you. These are, like all good, all good words are polysemous. Right? And the context um, disambiguates them. So same with these forms. And of course, Steinberg knew it way out of time. I'm sorry you can't see this. It's two walls at pace. Every once in a while, you, it's on display. This is Steinberg drawing a line. And the line keeps changing meaning. Here's the Grand Canal, clothesline, the street from above, the Nile, top of a, of a railroad, um, the top of a table. right? And he's t the line has many meanings, and it's very clear in in context. Okay, um, we've done record, convey, promote inferences. Couple of examples. This one recently became famous with a book. Um, again, Tufti reprinted it, but it's, it was well known to statisticians. Before that, back to the 1830s, there's a cholera ep epidemic in London. Nobody has the disease, nobody knows how diseases are caused, right? Nobody knows then. So, um, it, it, Snow asks, for a map of where all the cholera cases are. He sees that they cluster on Broad Street. You can't see it there. There's an X on Broad Street, and the X is where the water pump is. So he takes away the handle on the water pump, and the cholera epidemic subsides. Okay, so this is a map used for inferencing. And these are still used by epidemiologists. They're the key thinking tool for epidemiologists, for people who study pollen transmission, for even study, for migrations, what have you. They're the key way of thinking. Here's another example, a little more rarefied. World War II, 
There are bombers going from England to bomb Germany. Some of them are coming back, some of them aren't. There's a little bit of money to reinforce the bombers. Where do you reinforce them? So Wald took a, a map of a bomber, a picture of a bomber. This is before. And then every time a bomber came back and had been hit, he put a black mark on the picture. And he ended up with this. OK, so where do you reinforce? You reinforce where it's white. Because those are the bombers that didn't come back. Right? These came back. So you put, it happens to be where the pilot and the co-pilot are sitting. But, um, right? So, um, but, the, but again, visual inferencing good from, from making inferences from visual. Architects use this. This is a study that we did with architects designing a museum. And it's one of their sketches. And they look at these sketch, they sketch something out. They look at the sketch again. They see new things. They see new relationships. They'll see patterns all of a sudden. They'll see how the light is falling and realize that it shouldn't be that way. They'll see how the traffic is going. They drew it for one reason, and they get new insights from re-examining the sketch. This is why the architects like ambiguity. So if we want our route maps and our scientific diagrams to be very, very clear and schematic in our tube maps, if we're designing, the ambiguity is exactly what helps us conceive of new ideas. The architects hate. For early design, they hate the CAD-CAM programs. They rectify everything and don't allow them this fluidity of thought. So ambiguity has its place in finding new ideas. Finally, they facilitate collaboration. They externalize common ground. So I can tell you what I'm thinking by sketching it. And you can see it, and you can make changes on it. And what's more, if we both do it, it's our product, right? It's not yours or mine, it's ours. And we can both make inferences. So we've done some studies exactly on that. I don't, I'm not going to animate this, but I could. Um, so these are people planning an, an, uh, a rescue route after an earthquake when roads have been bombed, been bombed, closed off. So they're trying to find a rescue route. What's interesting here is it's all in the gesture. They aren't even looking at each other's faces. They're moving their hands around the map. In fact, they're using very small set of gestures, pointing at places. Um, um, they're doing linear things for routes, and they're doing kind of two-dimensional things for areas. They're saying, we don't have to worry about this area, and sweeping. So they have these zero-dimensional, one-dimensional, two-dimensional gestures, and all the work is in, in the gesture. Um, and that's what they're looking at. OK, why do graphics work? They work partly because spatial inferences are easy. We've been making them all our lives. Inferences about proximity, about direction, about dis well, distance is proximity. We're, we're, we may be, make errors in them, but we're better at that than almost anything else. So we can apply this spatial inferencing that we've learned from interacting with the world. We can apply that to these metaphoric sorts of concepts. Spatial metaphors are readily available. We think about time in terms of space, value in terms of space, strength in terms of space, scientific concepts in terms of space. The, so those metaphors are readily available. And then finally, the elements are interpretable, like things that resemble things, but also these schematic abstract forms, like frames and boxes and arrows, are easily um, uh, interpretable in context. So I've talked about four spaces, the space of the body, the space around the body, the space of navigation, the space, spaces we create of graphics. Um, and we began with the world as we perceive it and interact with it, the bodies that we have for doing that and the space that we inhabit. 
And we've tried to make the case that our perception and interaction differ for these different spaces, and they yield different conceptions of each of them. And again, they're unlike uh, geometers or Euclidean view of space, and they're unlike classic views of imagery. Um, our conceptions of space have profound effects on our language, on our memory, on our mental representation, information retrieval, on our behavior. They structure bias and distort thought, talk, and action. So we have nowhere to go but onward and upward. Thank you. The Frankie Lectures are made possible by the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to present important topics in the humanities. The fall series explores the overlapping and contending disciplines that account for the interaction of human cultures with their environments through dwelling, mapping, appropriation, and inscription and is organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar taught by Han Saucy, the Bird White Husum Professor of Comparative Literature.